Hello, everybody. If you are an entrepreneur, a small business owner, or even if you have a side gig, let me introduce you to Grasshopper, the entrepreneur's phone system. Grasshopper lets you send and receive calls and texts from your new business phone number. That way you can run your business from anywhere and respond to clients quickly with Grasshopper's mobile apps. Grasshopper, sign up today. Go to grasshopper.com slash films to get $20 off your first month. That's grasshopper.com slash films. Today on the NFL Films Podcast. We'll discuss the Ice Bowl, that coldest and most historic of games that's the subject of the newest installment of the documentary series, The Timeline. Our guests, the producers of the new Timeline documentary on the Ice Bowl, Julia Harmon and David Plout. Hello, hello. Howdy. And we'll talk to Michael Meredith, the son of the late Dandy Don Meredith. Both father and son played an integral role in this film, and you'll hear all about it. Welcome to the NFL Films Podcast. I'm Keith. I'm Paul. Bundle up, everyone. Time for some extreme exposure to the ice bowl. Wow. I mean, it's cold It's cold outside. I like that. Is it's, there, there going to be a lot of, like, puns yeah. during this podcast? Well, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready for that. I didn't prepare for the well-written parts. Well, I mean... Guess you'll be frozen out of that one. Kim. Nice. Yes, there he yeah. is. Yeah, you're going to, Dave's going to, he, he's got about 100 ready for you yeah, guys. Yeah, I don't want to give you the cold shoulder. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that voice is Dave Plout, great NFL films producer for how many seasons? 42. 42. Uh, and this will be his final season with NFL Films. We, in our last episode, we were with Bob Angelo, another NFL Films legend, who's in his 43rd season and retiring. And now Dave Plout in his 42nd and final season as one of the great storytellers at NFL Films. And I can't think of a better subject to have my swan song than arguably the, uh, the greatest and most exciting uh, postseason game ever played in NFL history. And your partner on this film is the comparatively callow. N nonetheless, a, a veteran in all things Packer, because Julia, who hails from Grand Rapids, Michigan, she is a Packer princess since how old were you when you first donned the green and gold? I mean, I think it's fair to say since I was born. I've been brainwashed at a very young age, Dave. So she was a very worthy ally uh, to have on this, this project. I, I felt covered and I felt more legitimate in Packerland working with Julia. And how many seasons, Julia, have you been with NFL Films? Uh, I believe this is my seventh season. You know, we often pair filmmakers to make documentaries here. We like working in pairs. So to pair a, a, a veteran like Dave, with somebody younger like Julia, you get a really interesting mix of ideas, perspectives, um, approaches, it, and it can yield something very interesting. The fan-non-fan dichotomy is also a useful one, we find, because there's people who sort of have the knowledge of the team and the game, maybe above and beyond what the other one might, and the emotions that come with that particular story, and they help sort of challenge each other to make sure it's both clear and compelling as the process gets teased out on the screen. And I think what Julia brought to the table that was extremely valuable, which I could not provide, is the perspective of the younger audience. When we uh, produce historic shows like The Timeline, we want to try to make them relevant to younger audiences. 
And Julia actually came up with a narrative thread that I think really will, that younger audiences will find extremely compelling. I would watch stuff like this uh, no matter what, because I'm interested in, in the history. But for younger audiences who are not acquainted with that, they need a narrative hook. And, and I think Julia's idea, which she can elaborate on, is really a, a very personal, not for her, but for Michael Meredith, that really I think people will be able to relate to. And kind of to go with that, that Dave knows the ice bowl better than maybe anybody I in know this it building. Cold, right? <laughs> he, Jeez, so, but boy, this is going to go on. We should have yeah, like, a, like a bell yeah, every time. There's yeah, a, there's a just, cold reference. I'm Steve, just, do we have a sound effect for this? All right. <laughs> I just he. I mean, any shot, any anything from that game. He or, he organized pretty much the entire project, and he's the ice bowl guru for sure. So you have a Packer fan who who knows the ice bowl. You have a football historian who knows knows the ice bowl but let's back up and explain just for our people who are a little less steeped in this what is the ice bowl what even further keith what is a game with a name what qualities does it need to become a game with a name well let's see that how many games are there that have names well there i mean what are some what are some na- games with names the sneakers game if you holy go way, roller, way back holy roller sea of hands immaculate reception music city miracle greatest game ever played tuck roll but a lot of those names are 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 given to plays that then signify the game the ice bowl on the other hand is like a a day it's like an event it's a it's a thing that exists in the imagination as much as it does as a real football game but i would argue that it is actually underrated as a football game. In the annals of professional football, I don't think we think of it as an actual football game enough. Like, it's like, oh, the ice bowl that day when it was like super cold and then the Bart Starr snuck it in and Lombardi was on the sideline and they were playing Landry and, you know, the shots are really crazy and everybody was frozen, right? That's the game, right? Like, that's what we think of the ice bowl, especially younger people, right, Julia? Mm-hmm, absolutely. I mean, that's coming into this. I had worked a little bit on the ice bowl because I did some stuff for the Packers Hall of Fame. But that's I, – I only remembered the final – remembered I wasn't alive, but I only uh, ever saw the final drive – and I only knew that it was very cold. I had very minimal knowledge of the entire game, but we really obviously dived into the whole game. And you're a Packers fan. Correct. So most people in our generation, uh, you're not even in my generation. No, yeah, you? you're flattering yourself. All right. Most people in our generations think <laughs> of it along those lines, even Packers fans. I, and, and I want to take a step back and say, all right, what, what is this game? Essentially, it's the NFC Championship yes, of 1967. Correct. Yes. Packers, Cowboys, two of the iconic teams in NFL history. At that point, this is the end of the Lombardi era, his final season in Green Bay, which he hadn't yet made public. Correct. But people suspected it, um, and they were going for their third straight championship. What, as a record. It had not been done before. And hasn't been done since. And fifth in seven years. And the Cowboys were still this sort of young, rising power that hadn't won anything yet, right? Correct. And the Cowboys and Packers had met earlier in that same calendar year. They played on New Year's Day in a much warmer Dallas Cotton Bowl stadium venue. And that game was decided virtually on the final play at the goal line when Dallas had the ball trailing by a touchdown, ready to send it into overtime. But 
Don Meredith uh, threw an interception after being pressured by Green Bay's defense. The interception stopped uh, their drive, and Green Bay hung on to win that game. So this is the revenge game after they already played a classic equivalent to the NFC Championship game the prior year, but now they're in Green Bay instead of Dallas. So there's all that context and setup wrapped up into this game, but the game itself transcends all of that. The Cowboys take the lead in the fourth quarter. On they a rally. Trip. They rally. They Before rally. that. They're down. Uh, Two touchdowns. 14 to nothing in the first half. Freezing cold, minus a bazillion degrees on the road. They go down 14 nothing and come back and take the lead on what? On a trick play that. Uh, and what was the play? It was. Uh, Don Meredith, the quarterback, pitched out to Dan Reeves. Dan Reeves! Dan freaking Reeves! Who later became coach of the Giants, then the Broncos, and the Falcons, went to several Super Bowls. But he threw from the opposite side, uh, again, into the wind, a 50-yard bomb that was caught by a second-year receiver named Lance Rensel. On that play, you see Lance Rensel running his route, but he almost slips on it which I find interesting because really how much would we be talking about this game if it didn't come down to the final drive? Obviously not very – And he's wide open, right? Yeah, he's wide open, but he almost he almost takes a spill. Dan Reeves, a running back, throws that pass to take the lead in the fourth quarter now, and the, the Packers offense is doing nothing. And this is not the Packers offense we remember with Paul Horning and Jim Taylor of the early 60s, the machine. This is like late era Lombardi. There's not quite the same level of talent, right? They have runners uh, carrying the ball who they had to sign off the street because their starting players had all been injured. Yeah, this is like Belichick here, picking players up off the scrap heap in the middle of the season, and all of a sudden you Chuck Mercine a journeyman running back is making the plays in the fourth quarter and they get the ball back with what four minutes left a little over four minutes yes yeah, four four fifty yeah I think. With, and they had about 70 yards to go and commence is one of the great drives in NFL history right it's yes. the setup really of the whole game and the whole week we this time of year especially we have these games it happened this weekend it happened last weekend it'll happen every weekend the rest of the season we have huge setups for games and sometimes we're disappointed but when we're not when when the game delivers yeah kind of proportionally to the setup. I think those are the games we remember, and sometimes those are the ones that end up with the names. The ones that end up impacting not just the guys in the field, the the players, the coaches, the broadcasters, the fans in the stands, but their families for generations after that. And I think that's one of the neat, unique things at the heart of this film. And it's really the question, this question of what makes this game such a big deal is what kind of propels the whole hour along, starting from really the first two voices you hear in the film. They're the wives of the two quarterbacks, Cheryl Meredith, who's the wife of Don Meredith, the Cowboys starting quarterback, and Cherry Starr, the wife of Bart Starr, the Hall of Fame quarterback from the Packers. And and this is how they start off the film in the, no pun intended, Keith, cold open. Just to start off, what is ice ball? What was it? For someone who doesn't know football, has never heard of the game. What is the ice bowl? What is it, yeah. Okay, it's American football. It was the coldest game ever played. Somebody froze to death in the stands. The players' fingers all froze. They couldn't get their cleats to go into the ground. And it was as cold as it is at the North Pole. Oh, and it was against the mighty Green Bay Packers. It was probably the greatest moment in football history for us. 
and the Green Bay Packers will be third time National Football League champions on a 12 below zero day here at Lambeau Field in Green Bay. It just changed our lives and it, it provided us with a great life, a lot of fun. Bart, it's a real pleasure to present you keys to this car. My whole life would have been different. Your dad's life would have been different. Not only did it break my heart, it wounded my soul. You don't ever get over something like that. So well, that, that's a really interesting place to start a, a movie about this legendary football game. And we should note, as it approaches its 50th anniversary, which is a great occasion to celebrate it, but pretty unexpected to start with the wives of the two quarterbacks. How did we get there? For Dave and I, we listened to those interviews, and Cheryl Meredith in particular really stood out to us. Like, she is still so emotional about this game, and it happened 50 years ago. Like, that's that's crazy that that game still has such an impact on her now. But the subtle thing about that interview is she's talking to someone that is obviously not your normal interviewer. Who, who is she talking to? Who is doing the interviewing? Uh, correct. She is talking to her son, Michael Meredith. Uh, he was, as Dave alluded to earlier, he is our narrative uh, piece for this whole film. So Michael Meredith is Don Meredith's son, who was the Cowboys quarterback during that game. And really, this film is different that we're taking a look at the ice bowl more so from the loser's perspective. And Michael trying to figure out what happened to my dad during that game and how did it, why did it affect my family so much, as you hear his mom talk about in the cold open. So, Paul, you're a showrunner of the timeline. And so you, you, you play a role in, in crafting all of these and figuring out how we're going to attack these stories once you and Ken Rogers pick the subjects. So this is a really interesting way in. Yeah, it was a unique opportunity we had in this one. And, and the only, I'm thinking off the top of my head, there, there, this, there's a similar model that we, we used last year. Um, we had Dan Rather, uh, who was the narrative spine of the 69 Redskins film that Dave also worked on. And, and in that instance, Dave, as you, you, you could, you remember, I mean, Dan was sort of a host as based on his, uh, what his livelihood was being the Washington bureau correspondent that year of 1969 when, when Lombardi coached, but he was also a fan. So he had this sort of dual role. So I remember thinking at the time, well, this is sort of a really neat intersection that we found through this one person who also happened to be someone who can articulate their viewpoint really well. Well, I think on this film, the opportunity we got Keith to answer a question kind of even up that ante because Michael was not only someone who is, he wasn't a participant in the game. He was only about three months old. Uh, but his mom was holding him as a baby back home in Dallas as she watched the game. Uh, it's, a, it's a story that obviously, as we've already touched on, has lived in his family in a very compelling, uh, provocative, in some ways sad way his entire life as he's heard about it. So he's sort of a, you could call him a participant, but also based on his background as a filmmaker and a storyteller, he's someone who can also uh, – sort of think about things narratively and explain them in a way that a normal interview subject or even a even an on-camera host uh, can't. I mean, Michael was both a, a almost a third person and first person at the same time in putting this show together. But he had been pursuing it on his own. I remember meeting him one day, oh, you know, by the water cooler. Ken Rogers is walking him around with his family and introduced me to him. You know, here's Michael Meredith, Don Meredith's son. He's working on 
trying to tell the story of the ice ball. So he kind of was on his own, on his own path, and we were aware that the 50th anniversary of the ice ball was coming up, and the two storytelling pieces came together that way, maybe with a little sprinkle of a, of a, of a great producer named Maura Mant who helped yeah. bring it all together. I don't think that Michael, when he was envisioning his own um, version of the Ice Bowl, was going to be told from a first-person point of view. I think he was just going to do a fairly uh, conventional narrative. And that's where Julia's idea really, I think, was a game changer for us. And it was not something that occurred to him. Uh, for a guy who has worked in Hollywood, he, his ego is remarkably very low level. He's a really chill dude. But, and I don't think he would have thought of this, but Julia's uh, idea was representing a younger audience. She said, <clears throat> I'm interested in this stuff. I'm a Packer backer and I work at NFL Films, but many people my age really don't know that much and would not be that interested in it. We need to find a personal thread, a character actually in the film who you can root for and really be interested in to get involved in. And that's when everything changed for us because we presented this idea to Michael and he said, this is great. And then he channeled a, a very well-decorated documentary called My Architect that was made about 10 years ago. It was made by Nathaniel Kahn, the son of the great architect uh, Louis Kahn, who built many classic buildings all over the world. He was a kid who didn't know his father very well, wanted to discover more about his dad through his work. And Michael said, this is almost the same kind of idea on a football scale, not, not from an, an artistic scale. But he was very intrigued by that. And I think it gives us a narrative thread that anyone of any age will be compelled to follow because it is so personal and the characters are so real and so emotional. People do not hold back in these interviews. Some of them are really quite touching. And when I watch some of them, I've seen 30, 40, 50 times as we've gone through the filmmaking process. I'm still moved by them and just the sheer level of involvement and, and deep caring that they have. So we're going to talk to Michael a little later in the show. One thing I'm interested in talking to him about is the challenge of interviewing your mom. Uh, and trying to, yeah. to tease these emotions and these stories and these details. Like any kid or most kids growing up, you, you have questions you want to ask the people in your family, your parents, your grandparents. A lot of us don't get around to doing it and, and have that regret. But this project kind of gave him a vehicle. I'm curious, Julie, what is your how did it work for you, though, as the filmmaker, working with someone and having to be sort of respectful to them as a collaborator and the fact that this belongs to them and is pulling on their heartstrings, but also doing your diligence to the, for the audience on their behalf and, and creating a compelling story at the same time? You know, I, I thought when we were going to work with Michael that it was, we're gonna, we were going to have some difficulties in picking and choosing because obviously his, his whole heart is into this, uh, the story of the Ice Bowl and, and, and his dad, but he was pretty wonderful to work with, I have to say. Like he, he loved having, you'll see Cheryl is all throughout the ice bowl. He loved that. And she was very emotional and raw. And watching him watch that, I was like, ooh, he might like want to pull back a little, like be a little bit more protective of his mom. And he wasn't. I mean, he thought that stuff was great. So it's pretty, it's kind of a once in a life. There aren't many stories you can tell this way through either a, par a parent talking about their child when their child child's not going to speak or vice versa in a way that they almost feel the... Like they have to be a guardian of that story. Like you could, you could maybe feel Keith more candid to talk about yourself than you would about someone who you, you were close to. And the, the job of trying to get them to do both is not an enviable one, I don't think. The thing I love about it, though, is that who doesn't love 
a guy investigating like his dad, you know, his sort of mysterious, super famous dad who he didn't know that well and who kind of it got a little dark maybe at the end. And that story construct is, is just really, really appealing in its basic structure. The layers that you hear about from Don's immediate and also uh, short, medium, and long-term reactions, the emotions that we hear uh, both through the sound we capture with him and through his family members, I think are, are pretty strong. Really no less than a depression he went into after this game, which comes out uh, in some of, these, some of the sound bites throughout the film. This one in particular, you'll hear Michael, uh, who we've alluded to, but also Cheryl, uh, Michael's mom, and Lance Rensel, that receiver who caught what almost was the winning touchdown. Uh, and here the three of them are reflecting on the impact that this game had on Don. This has left a big scar on Don, and I think Don has suffered more from this because he feels it's the quarterback's job to lead the team uh, to victory, and he felt that uh, he sincerely failed the, the team the last two years uh, losing to Green Bay. Of course, we don't agree with this. They think you're Superman, and he wasn't Superman. He was just a man trying his best. Dallas just needed that break, especially your dad. We couldn't talk without just bursting into tears. We were wounded, you know, so he just wanted to go to bed. And so we didn't talk. I don't think we ever really talked about it. It was too painful. My dad came to this house right after the ice bowl. My mom told me he came back and just wanted to reflect. Maybe he was thinking about the next chapter of his life. And I, I would imagine the ice bowl had to have something to do with that. My dad played one more season with the Cowboys, then decided to retire at the age of 31. He retired too young. I think he would have played longer if the ice bowl hadn't just crushed us so much, crushed him. I just can't get over how cool it is that Don Meredith's son frequently interviewing his own mother and the emotion that, that you can feel on both ends of it is, is extraordinary. Dave and I would go with Michael when he would do some of these interviews. We weren't with him when he was with his mother. But it was interesting to watch Michael interact with these people that knew his dad because they would almost automatically say something very flattering about his dad or like tell like a funny story about his dad. So it was a, they, he, even though Michael wasn't there at that game. He didn't play with those guys. He already had this instant connection with almost everyone he interviewed, which I think helped him get uh, some great interview bites. And Don Meredith was a huge star in his own right, wasn't he? I mean, He actually achieved greater fame after he retired because he was on the original crew of Monday Night Football, which started in 1970. And it was a totally different way to broadcast the NFL on television. And he was a major reason for that. He was a larger-than-life personality. People tuned in every week to hear him give the homespun corn pone version of the game. Howard Cosell was the slick uh, big city lawyer. And the two of them uh, played these roles magnificently. And you, you had the red state, blue state, before we knew what that was, going at it, but in a, in a friendly and, and very entertaining manner. And from that, Don uh, turned that into an acting career as a spokesperson for many commercials. For a number of years throughout the 70s, he was usually very high on the queue list. That's the for the most popular people in America, the most recognizable people. So 
he people who knew him from his Lipton tea commercials, many of them had no idea that he played pro football. Going so. in when Michael Merritt is showing up at all these all of his old teammates' houses to go interview them for for this movie, um, that they, they're approaching it as like not only their teammate but but someone who kind of became a legend in, in pop culture for a long time. And that respect is not just with his teammates, but many of the Packers who were interviewed for this show because they knew him as a player but got to know him better as a broadcaster because many of them continued to play after Don was broadcasting for ABC. And so they had that relationship too. So there was incredible amount of respect for Don from the Packers. And in fact, I think that carries over for everybody on both teams because these two squads went through a unique experience. It, it can never be duplicated. There will never be another game like this. And to have survived that the way that you would have Frazier and Ali survive the thrill in Manila, it's a bond that only they can share. And that really comes through in the film. We're going to talk to Michael about Orangey, a character who Julia helped find and, and really uh, broker a, a meeting between this sort of off-the-wall Packer uh, backer and, and Michael. But there's also, I mean, there were famous people in the crowd. Like People like to say now how Tom Brady was in, in the crowd at Candlestick Park uh, the day of the catch. While there at Lambeau Field, there was a Hollywood actor you, who came to become famous much later who was there as a young Packer fan, uh, shivering with everybody else. The first Packer game. Everybody was pretty hunkered down because of the cold, but also there was still tailgating and plenty of beer, and uh, it was a party. I got very close to frostbite at the game. My feet, by the time I got home from the game, they were on fire. I couldn't feel them, you know, and I, they, my father, who was a, a doctor, put me in a hot bath right away to kind of thaw them out, and they were very close to frostbite. Willem Dafoe. Who lights up during the, I mean, this is, again, this is a, a big-time Hollywood actor, still lights up. You can see the, the twinges of nostalgia and, and excitement on his face when he talks about being in the crowd that day. This could be just me, but when I, whenever I listen to a, a great actor's voice, I, I sit there and wonder whether he'd be a good, he or she would be a, a good narrator because of the line of work we're in. I think Willem Dafoe would be a good narrator. Certainly. It's a different kind of voice. Very distinct. Yeah, it's different. It had to be a specific show, for sure. So, Dave, your your credits we talked about in the Ice Bowl film brought certain benefits and challenges to a project like this. Julie, among your other projects you work on is Hard Knocks. Uh, and the interesting thing is, to me, it's we call it, we're all called producers, and it's all called directing or producing. But uh, wh what is the difference, just explain for the layman here, kind of some of the differences, compare and contrast, directing and producing an in-the-moment, topical, embedded unscripted show like Hard Knocks versus a long form doc like this Ice Bowl film? Uh, they're very different, as you can imagine. Uh, being directing and at Hard Knocks in the field, it is very in the moment. And you could go on a shoot with a player, I don't know, whatever, if they're fishing or if they're hanging out with their family and you see things that are happening there. And so you're kind of constantly evolving with the show. And that show airs uh, once a week. So you really have to be on top of your game there. Working with Michael Meredith is much different than working with an NFL player. They're fantastic, but you know, you got, you have limited time with them. You know, you, you go show up at their house or whatever, you have 30 minutes to an hour. With Michael Meredith, we could really plan ahead. Like, what do we want to do? Um, really the only time that I had to think on my feet the most uh, was at a couple of the ceremonies that we went to, the Dallas ceremony and the Packer ceremony where they were honoring 
the uh, players from the 60s and then the shoot with orangey because once we started shooting in Appleton, Wisconsin, we collected quite a number of Packer fans wondering what was going on. One thing I would like to interject, Julia is an Emmy award-winning director of Hard Knocks and Emmy award-winning director of All or Nothing, the Amazon in-season access show. She's, her credentials go far beyond. Um, a grizzled veteran of the field. Yeah, you know, we <laughs> you described are. her as comparatively callow. She's killing it out here. But um, what I wanted to ask was, to what extent was Michael a storytelling partner? And to what extent was he subject? Well, I, I have to say, and Dave went on a couple of these shoots too, so feel free to chime in with any of this. But so whenever I was out in the field with Michael, I I really was able to give him direction and he was very receptive to it. And he would he would present some ideas, but really I think we tried to be as authentic as possible to what is Michael actually doing versus like let's, you know, you know, go walk past a sign or anything like that. You know what I mean? So like, for instance, we went to the Green Bay Press Gazette and we did have a couple things we wanted him to look at, but we wanted his conversation to be natural. And I didn't tell him what to say. I didn't tell him what to do. I just said, we have a couple things here that would be interesting for you to look at. So really, we just wanted to follow him and see him talk with people. Even that happened again at, we went to another event where he was talking, you see it in the film, he's talking with Jerry Kramer and they have a very genuine conversation. We kind of got to be flies on the walls for that. So I guess to that extent, that's kind of like hard knocks or all or nothing because that's what we try to do with those shows too. I think what's cool about it is as, as time marches on and the NFL history goes forward, there's still all these great stories from the past and sometimes we're retelling them in new ways sometimes we're unearthing them for the first time and I think in what you guys achieved here it shows that with the right voice and the right approach even if you can't interview the principals because they're they're no longer with us or, or whatever the case is there's still really compelling ways to tell these stories and and kind of not just preserve the the history of the game but really continue to examine it and move it forward and um, help us understand what came before well I think without further ado then it would be a nice time to bring in the narrator, the co-producer, the first-person voice of this journey into the one of the greatest football games ever played, the ice ball. Let's talk to Michael Meredith, Paul. That sounds great, Keith, but before we do... How about a word from our friends at Grasshopper? Love it! If you're an entrepreneur, a small business owner... Or Dave, you know, now that you're retiring, even if you have a new side gig, I guess it wouldn't be a side gig at that point. It'd be his primary gig. gig. Either way. Please tell me more. Let me introduce you to Grasshopper, the entrepreneur's phone system. Grasshopper lets you run your business from your cell phone while keeping your business and personal lives separate. Choose from their huge inventory of local toll-free or vanity toll-free numbers. Simply forward your new number to your mobile phone and start taking calls immediately. Whether you're in an office, in your car, Grasshopper's iPhone and Android apps can help you stay connected to your customers. Not to mention, you can send and receive calls and texts from your business phone number, set up multiple extensions for everyone in your team, get your voicemails transcribed and emailed to you, work from anywhere with call forwarding, make and receive calls from your computer via the desktop app, and even utilize Wi-Fi calling. Better yet, Grasshopper offers an easy and instant setup and 24-7 customer support all without any long-term contracts. Grasshopper, sign up today. Go to grasshopper.com slash films to get $20 off your first month. 
That's grasshopper.com slash films. So we're joined now by Michael Meredith, the son of Don Meredith, Dandy Don. Those who remember him know him by that name. If you don't remember him, if you're too young or whatever the case may be, this truly is one of those guys that when your teachers say, you know, you ought to look this guy up. You ought to find out about him. He lived quite a life. Don Meredith is all that and more. There, there are players in NFL history who are entertaining. There are those who are accomplished. Uh, there are those that are important. Well, he was all three of those things. A little backstory, a little background on him. He was a star at SMU, Southern Methodist, in the late 50s, early 60s, then with the Dallas Cowboys in their infancy, uh, but really their first rise to greatness through the 60s, uh, the mid, mid to late 60s. No less than a broadcasting icon on the groundbreaking Monday Night Football booth that made primetime network television's uh, presentation of NFL football a real thing beginning in the early 70s. Uh, and, and here at NFL Films, really, as well-covered a figure as anyone in that era other than maybe Vince Lombardi. Uh, Don Meredith was captured, I think, largely because of his relationship that Steve Sable struck up with him. Don Meredith was captured on the field, off the field, uh, in his personal life, talking about the game, interviewed more than maybe anybody um, so it's a, a pleasure to be talking to you today, Michael, about your dad and about his role in the Ice Bowl film. Thank you. Let's listen to Don Meredith here to give you a sense of what this guy's personality was all about. We started to learn even more about the significance of what his dad had you know, really been a part of. And getting to know more about his dad has just been a special part of our family. He was a big deal. Didn't overthrow him that time. Hey, you feel better, baby? All right, that's good. Nice move, Lance. You guys want some close-ups? Well, your dad was like a movie star. He was a comedian. He was a singer. He was a show-off. He had a twinkle in his eye, he smiled all the time, he made jokes. Don Meredith, roll three, Jeff and Hazel's baby boy out of Mount Vernon, Texas, riding 12 jumps to midnight. Take a deep seat, cowboy, you got a long ride. (laughs) That was, in fact, my dad and my mom and my wife all in one clip. Yes, Amit, uh, Michael's wife, was in there, and his mom, Cheryl, who they both appear in the film. Michael, of all, with all that, the one thing you told me which I thought was fascinating was when you were growing up and someone found out your dad, just in general, was a football player in the 1960s, there's one question you heard over and over. What was it? Did he play in the ice bowl? First one. And why do you think that was? What was it about that game that had resonated so much with everyone? Well, um, that's part of what I tried to explore and learn um, with you know on this film. I knew about the conditions, and that those were, um, you know, unparalleled. Never again will there be something like that. But I, I thought there was something more, particularly because the majority of people that asked me that question were from the South and were Cowboy fans. So to um, to revere almost a game that that we lost, I thought was interesting, and uh, I wanted to explore that. And that's what I hope we did with the show. And I got to give a lot of credit to Dave Plout and Julie Harmon and all the guys here that that. Uh, if I had to do this in, in a cave by myself, there's no way. You know, I, I just wouldn't have the perspective. So it's, um, I'm really proud of how it turned out, and um, a lot of credit goes to other, other folks, but that, that part's cool. How did your perspective on the game, how do you think it was formed 
based on being in the South and Dallas versus maybe someone your age who was born in, say, Green Bay, Wisconsin? Well, it was more exotic. The, the, the frozen tundra, I had never been to Green Bay, and um, just the, uh, the insane trivia around the game, a fan freezing to death and the frostbite and the guys, uh, the imagery too, I think with NFL films captured probably for the first time with the, the steam, the exhale coming out of the guys' mouths, and it was just so dramatic looking from the photographs to the, to the film to the stories, and then what I just dreamt up in my mind, Green Bay must be like in Lambeau. So um, I think it helped uh, create a mythological sort of thing in my mind as a kid, and a lot of people in the South too. So this voyage of discovery, this sort of quest that you went on in, in diving into this game, tell us a little more about that, kind of how long it's been going on. And, and particularly, there was kind of an urgency that compelled you wanting to go out and capture these stories. Why was that? Yeah. I come from a scripted narrative world, so I've always worked with actors and, and written and directed feature films, um, not documentaries. And the original idea was actually to do a um, an ice bowl movie with actors and uh, the, the, I was shooting for the most authentic kind of football film that we've had. Um, both my dad and I were responded and loved the, um, opening sequence in Saving Private Ryan when they're storming Normandy and all that. And a lot of the vets that saw that movie said, that's exactly what it was like. It took them back to that place. So I thought that it'd be really cool if I could do that with the, with the ice bowl because technology's changed and player consultants and um, even, you know, that Janusz Kaminski, the guy who shot it, I, I wanted to hire him and talk to some actors. And I talked to my dad about that idea. And I had never done anything on football um, and asked him what he thought and if I could have his blessing and all that. And his, you know, his line was, well, just tell it like it was. And that was his, his main directive. I didn't get around to, to starting it in time, but um, uh, about four years ago now, I guess it was, I called up Bart Starr. I thought if I have to start one place, I'll start with him. And I remember the call vividly because I never met him. I introduced myself on the phone and I told him what I wanted to do. And this first he said, hmm, very suspicious. <laughs> you know, the loser's son, doing, he didn't say that, <laughs> but like of all people who would do this, why would Don's son do it? But said, come to Birmingham, I'll welcome you into my house, you can stay as long as you, and then we did. We went, went there for a few days and uh, filmed Bart and Jerry. You quickly realized that Bart, St like everybody does who meets Bart Starr and Cherry, that Bart Starr and Cherry are the, the two nicest people in the entire world. Yeah, I can't think of a more gracious person and, and um, consistently that way his entire life, you know. We all have our highs and lows and I just, the guy doesn't have any lows, he's amazing as a character. And Cherry and Bart Jr., the whole family, they welcomed me in um, to make a film, which was a gamble. I, if I was them, I'd think, well, what is this guy going to focus on? Is it um, that he's going to whine about the field system breaking or Kramer or whatever it could be? And not, not an iota of that. At that point, you know, it's interesting that Bart asked you why would the, loser, why would the loser's son want to make this movie. Did you have an adequate answer at that point to that question? Well, he didn't actually ask that um, or use those terms. He just, I remember him saying, very suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> and then at some point there was a comment, this is not really the politically timely to use this, but he said, this is kind of like General Lee's son doing a you know, film on the Civil War. Uh, and I said, well, okay, I, you know, I'll take it, whatever. Um, but I think he found it an interesting idea 
because the Ice Bowl has been chronicled and the story's been told, but not from the cowboy perspective. So you were old enough uh, to watch, as you were growing up, to kind of watch your dad in the show business portion of his career a little bit more than the football portion of his career. What sense of your of that game did you have kind of starting out just from what you'd absorbed growing up? Of the ice bowl? Yes. I knew that a lot of people in the South felt like if the weather had been different, the outcome might have been different. And... Um, and uh, the, the real big discovery that I made through the process of researching and doing this was that a lot of people felt like there was a victory underneath the defeat, which we can talk about later. But um, that that I sensed that's that something else like it's not just cold and it wasn't just the frostbite and all that stuff. There's something more to the game. What's interesting here is there's a real process. You start out wanting to make a scripted drama. Mm-hmm. using Spielberg's cinematographer, yeah. and, and you wind up using the actual archival NFL films footage and making a documentary with NFL films, which yeah. is quite a pro- that's quite a journey in itself. And then there's the journey you took of just answering the questions you had yeah. that led you to wanting to tell the story in the first place. Yeah. And to jump back to what you said a little earlier, there was an urgency because uh, I think it's close to a dozen folks have passed away since I started this journey and um, players and referees and announcers. And and that just um, I've never done a documentary before. So that's an unusual ticking clock as a you know producer and a director. It's like, I got to get there. I got to talk to this person because I just don't know if they'll be healthy or alive you know, tomorrow. So there is some keeper of the flame thing that you feel a responsibility that you that comes with doing a documentary when did you know that it was going to be a documentary and not a scripted film the next step of of trying to do a feature that's based on one game um which is a very hard pitch because it's you know they where's the love story where's the you know was um why don't you do a documentary as part of uh, the research that will lead to the scripted narrative so it shifted to a documentary pretty early. Like I think, like I said, it's about four years ago. Um, and that became so interesting to me and such a sprawling animal that you have to, you can't control. You follow leads, you become an investigator and an anthropo. I mean, all of it. Um, I just got consumed and, and fell in love with making a documentary. So then the 50th anniversary was that became the next ticking clock and now we're you know coming up on it real fast what if anything did you learn about your dad what perspective on your dad maybe was impacted by by this research uh, a huge change in my perception and understanding of him um, definitely in the decade of the 60s for sure and I think it came mostly from his peers. Um, the process of making this had me reconnect with a lot of the guys um, and players and others. And it's been a while. My dad, he passed away in 2010, um, but kind of went into uh, hiding earlier than that, moved to Santa Fe and sort of disappeared. And a lot of his buddies missed him. And there was a void where um, he, you know, where he used to be. So when I came back, just vicariously uh, as the son, I, I was welcomed and embraced, and these guys really um, opened themselves up, and were, I couldn't have been more gracious. But I learned how much they loved him and how much of a leader he was to them. And, and 
when you have when you have guys that are titans and larger than life to start with, and then they show their admiration for someone that was a leader to the leaders, um, it really impressed me and um, touched me, and I had a whole new um, level of pride for what my dad did. What's the one or one or two things you would, you'd love to ask your dad right now about this game? You know, I I think it's actually something that I would love to tell him. And it's what I learned in this process is that he did not let his team down and he did not let his city down. And he did a tremendous amount for for the people that he loved. And I think he he maybe didn't fully realize that, um, or at least as much as I would love to let him know, hey, I've heard this from everybody and I'm a good researcher and I, I can prove it. <laughs> so um, I, I would love to tell him that. What didn't you get to do in this film, or what did you learn about how what it takes to make a documentary that surprised you? Yeah, it could be unique to this this type of doc, but it was really difficult to figure out what what is interesting to me because it's my dad and his journey, and like you say, a bit of a father son story, and what'll be interesting to everybody else. In the process of Michael's journey, there's some. Uh, a handful of things that come out in the show that were things that he found that we captured in kind of a neat way. And a lot of them are based on the people you met. And here's one of them. One thing I learned about these Packer fans is that some took home more than just frostbite. This is Gene, more commonly known as Orangey. He stole my dad's cape, but he doesn't know yet that I'm Don's son. They had built some temporary dugouts and they had a couple big hunter blowers blowing in. And I said, I know where I'm going. They said, you can't go there. I said, the hell I can't. Have, you know, you got a few beers in you, of course. So I just jumped across the fence and walked over and sat down in the dugout. Meredith happened to be next to me when the cowboys got the ball. Landry hollers out, offense. So he throws his cape off, and I look at that. I put it on. I look like a football player now. Did you ever think that 50 years after the ice bowl, Don's son would come looking for that cape? No. Come on. <laughs> Michael Meredith, sir. Here we go. Hey. Oranges. Orangey. Nice you got her. Nice to meet you officially. <laughs> Who would I ever guessed? Yeah. Orangey said I could keep the cape. Looks like it's about my size. But I declined his kind offer. As it turned out, my dad probably didn't need that jacket in the third quarter when the Dallas offense began to heat up. Like any other adventure film where the son goes back to, uh, to avenge the father. Now, you didn't want to take the cape to give to your, your children someday? You resisted the temptation? Oh, I'll get it. I'll get it. No, <laughs> yeah. The cape, is, the cape is awesome. Yeah. It's awesome. The great color shade of blue the Cowboys never use anymore. Yeah. They wore that. Uh, that thing is... I can't believe you didn't walk out of the house with that thing, Michael. Well, you know, it's all a good time. Revenge is a cold plate, right? We served. But, you know, that was a fun sequence. And his uh, first question I asked him is, well, how, your name's Orangey. How'd you get that name? He's like, oh, I stole a crate of oranges when I was five years old. <laughs> and I've been called that ever since. He's a real thief, this guy. He's <laughs> always stealing things. It was a den of thieves we went into. There's this old little bar where they just had a bunch of stuff. But, yeah, apparently he, he swiped that and... Um, we caught him on YouTube bragging about it. Were there, tell us about some of the other places, sort of the, the attics and the basements and the libraries and sort of the Indiana Jones trail that you went on and where it brought you. 
Yeah, well, I did hit a lot of libraries and um, down in Dallas, a lot of old archives and stuff that hadn't been seen before, transferred before, and then just kind of odd serendipitous meetings. Like I was at a film screening with um, an actor that that everybody is, he's actually just got nominated for a Golden Globe, and his name's Willem Dafoe. And I was talking to him about this uh, project and uh, you know the game, and he goes, "Yeah, that's." Yeah, no, I remember. I remember it all. And I was like, wow, you were pretty young. Did you did you see it? He said, no, I was there, 40-yard line. That's incredible. <laughs> so he was yeah. a 12-year-old kid, and Willem Dafoe, his, uh, his dad's neighbor, couldn't go, last-minute ticket, and he went and sat through the whole game. And that was just coincidence. I just happened to run into him. But I think when you start working on something and it gets in your head and you're uh, you're talking about it more and it gets out in the universe that some of those things come to you, and that, that one did. So... So Willem's in the movie, too. As it went on, did the narrative start to take shape in ways that were unexpected to you? Yeah, I think it's a combination of you. Part of part of what you do as a filmmaker, like you say, you're telling the story. And every time you tell it, you, you watch and see how people are reacting to different things. And after a while, certain elements always get an interesting response. And you, then you got to put that on the list of maybe we should include this. So you are kind of pitching everybody through the course of making it to to see what lands and what resonates and um that that's part of the part of the process it's fun you know you kind of use it no one knows that but you're using everybody as a test audience yeah you want to see what people respond to yeah you know you mentioned it it almost sounded like a pitch process when you talked to bart Starr. what was that conversation when you asked your mom about wanting to interview her to tell this story she she had no choice. <laughs> like, Mom, you're doing this. Her her reluctance was, I don't want to say anything that's going to hurt anybody's feelings. And, um, you know, there's there's a, a one thing that I found, is a, which is a challenge, goes back to an earlier question, is a lot of these guys have um, established the image that they like in popular culture, and, um, and understandably so. And they... They're they're moving on in years, and they want the, their legacy to stay intact, and they don't really want to. Um, you try to dig deeper and get them to tell more personal stories, or if they were scared at that moment, or if they um, regret things, and uh, it's hard because they because they don't want to tarnish what's what's been harvested all these years. And my mom didn't want to do that either. One story that I love is. On the defensive side, as that drive's happening, Jethro Pugh, the guys are having to smack him because he is in the huddle arguing with his mother, who he's convinced has come off the sidelines and is telling him it is too damn cold to be out here playing football. Get inside. Are you crazy? Get... And he would say, Mom, come on. And it was hypothermia and the, you know, the game IQ element, the brain having to deal with the temperature and stay focused. He was literally hallucinating that his, that his mom was in the huddle. That's like some John Krakauer stuff right there. Yeah, yeah. We just yeah. moved beyond the, uh, the sports film well, uh, uh, area. Yeah, we moved into a different genre here. <laughs> yeah, I'm just glad nobody started to, like, eat each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It could have happened. You know, they were burning the seats to stay warm, and it, you know, it was pretty... But that's, well, that's the other thing, though. If you love sports, you know, forget about football. If you understand what sports is, if you've ever played a game in your life, then you should be able to watch this film and, 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 and watch the ice ball and understand the, the, the depth of the achievement of everybody who was on the field that day, win or lose. Yeah, yeah. I, I find that the curiosity for the game 
even outside of America, traveling and, and you know the people know this. They've heard of the game, even if they haven't. They don't follow the NFL. They don't know. It, and I think that it, it's the conditions. But any type of competition where it's a man's finest hour kind of thing, you have to dig deep and you have to find something that you didn't know was there. It transcends like you say, a football game or there's something something larger um, that people are fascinated with in this game. And that, and I, I have been and remain that way too. So after having said all that, then you started out with this goal of this, this feature film presentation. Has that goal been satiated through this documentary experience or, or further peaked? Is that, is that still out on the horizon, sort of the filmmaking bucket list for you? I would love to do that. I think the time was around the 50th. You know, I just think it's uh, it is an unconventional idea. It's a bit of a risk. It's probably like um, what was it, a hundred and thirty-two hours or twenty-three hours, where it's like you pitch that, a guy gets stuck between a rock, and that's the movie. Yeah, like, I could. Ne- James Franco, right? Yeah. Right, right, yeah, yeah. I was really surprised. I was just riveted by that. It, it captured my attention, and I didn't get bored. And I know that this game has that, but when you pitch it... Um, Again, extremities and great danger. Yeah, yeah. So that's, the, that's the genre we're after. In one location, <laughs> you know, and it, yeah, it is. <laughs> but you know, but you know I guess what? he did, he lost his arm. So. There, yeah, there, there have been films made based on NFL films documentaries before. Do you know that Invincible yeah, was yeah. made... A producer here named Pete DiStefano, we used to do these pieces for ESPN called Distant Replay on yeah. Monday nights. Yeah. And they would play them in the Monday night pregame show, I think. And it would be a five-minute feature about an old player that's forgotten or an old game. And he did a, a feature on Vince Papali, and somebody in Hollywood saw it and said, we should make a movie out of that. Yeah. And Pete DiStefano actually left here and went and worked on the movie. And it, oh, obviously great. Invincible was a terrific film. But yeah. I would not be surprised at all if somebody saw this film. This timeline, the ice ball film, and, and said, let's let's make a movie. Well, I'm ready. Love to do the ice ball as a film, and I got a lot of uh, actor buds that are major major names that would do it in a heartbeat. Uh, Willem Dafoe's got to play Lombardi. Yeah, right? who's, yeah is Dafoe oh, playing? I, and, and I didn't talk to Willem about it, but it's and I hate to actually mention any names. I don't want to pin anybody down, but there, there is the one role. I've been doing films for about 15 or so years, and. Every time I talk to an actor, what do you want to do? What, what do you, if something could come your way? What it, it's it's at sports, most like a boxer. Every every actor wants to play a boxer in some kind of movie, but um, there's a real fa- interesting thing with actors idolizing and wanting to be more like a gladiator or be more like a professional athlete, and then vice versa. You know, my dad included. He wanted to get into acting, but. Um, so I know the cast would be great, and visually it could be a lot of fun, and we could get a good crew. Who would play your dad? That is a hard question. That is a really tough question. Um, when I was, this is, a, I guess, when I was talking to my dad about it, it would be almost seven years ago, and Chris Pratt was the, was the guy that I was thinking of back then. Um, he's He's a little bit older now, but it's a tough one. Chris Pratt could still do it. He's he's yeah. still in his matinee idol days. Yeah, yeah. Well, we can start shooting soon. Let's get it on. Yeah, but, you know, whenever between Guardian of the Galaxy. Uh, it's a really difficult episode. thing to cast when it's your it's because it's my dad, but also he was pretty an enigmatic character and hard to pin down, um, and just. I mean, I, I did a movie called The Open Road, and it was loosely inspired by—he uh, um, was an ex-baseball guy, 
but Jeff Bridges is who I cast, and he he really nailed it. He got my dad down well. So he's a, he's a pretty good actor. He's Jeff a pretty Bridges. good actor. He's, so yeah, he's all right. a young Jeff would be great. And but, yeah, your dad certainly was a dude. Yeah, they were they were dudes. <laughs> Fantastic actor and great person. It was an honor to work with him. But yeah, tricky question. I don't know. Well, Michael, this has been awesome talking to you. Like we get to talk to the filmmakers on this podcast. We sometimes get to talk to the talent, but to have someone who has such a close relationship to the show, uh, from a character standpoint, one of the, probably the main figure, but also, uh, from a filmmaking standpoint is a pretty unique opportunity. So we want to thank you again for your time. And, and of course, thank you for all your great work on the show. It's a great show. If you if you know the ice bowl, watch it, you'll learn new things. If you don't know the ice bowl, definitely watch it. Uh, this is required knowledge for any football fan thanks michael thank you guys that was michael meredith the narrator and uh producing partner of the timeline ice ball son of dandy we're back with mr plout ms Harmon the uh, producer-editors of the, the film and the directors. So let's take our last few minutes here, Mr. Plout, to grill you. Grill away. So, and, and I think where we should start is how you came to NFL Films. Well, this is my 42nd season uh, with NFL Films, but I have five previous years of experience in the National Football League. I started at the age of 17. I was still in high school when I began working for the San Diego Chargers. I, was, I lived in San Diego at the time. I was hired to be a camp kid, uh, and I worked at their summer camp for five summers doing all kinds of different jobs. And one of them was occasionally helping uh, crews when they came in to do features or something like that if they needed to be driven around or set up uh, interviews with players. And in 1973, Steve Sable and Phil Tuckett and uh, other crew members came out to uh, their camp in Irvine, California, and they were doing a feature on their special teams coach, the Chargers special teams coach, a guy named Ron Ratman Waller. So uh, the PR guy with the Chargers, Jerry Wynn, said, uh, NFL Films is coming out. You're going to be their driver, get them whatever they need. So I just hung with them uh, during the, the time that they were there and was able to, I guess, ingratiate myself with them. But I was not seeking a, a job. My uh, goal was I was a film major at Northwestern, and my plan was to stay in California and go to Los Angeles and work in TV or film there. So I really didn't entertain the idea of coming to NFL Films. But I ended up doing a paper in a documentary film class at Northwestern on NFL Films. It ended up being published in an academic journal. So just as a professional courtesy, I sent it to Steve. And uh, Steve also had agreed to be interviewed for that paper. So we've had additional conversation. Likely well, story. He sent it as a professional courtesy. I, I did. I was actually working in broadcasting at the time in San Diego. I was an on-air personality. Hard to believe, I know. But anyway, Steve got it, and it happened to come two days after one of the producers was going to announce that he was going to leave to start his own production company in Colorado. It was getting late in the summer. They needed to get another... We were called editors back then. We weren't. We were not highfalutin producers. We were editors. So he said, "Oh, remember that guy from San Diego?" And the guy can obviously write. He knows football. He called me uh, after he'd gotten the paper. Said, "Would you be interested in interviewing for a job here? Because uh, you know this is great stuff." I said, "Sure." I'd never been to Philadelphia before. Figured I could you know see uh, Independence Hall, get a cheesesteak, you know the whole thing. Went in. They uh, interviewed me and. 
And I got the, I showed up in a lime green polyester leisure suit. In spite of that, I still got the job offer. And I said, well, I'll do this for a few years and come back. And 42 years later, I'm still here. T tell one great story about your time with the Chargers. Well, the, probably the most interesting thing uh, was that I got to know John Unitas extremely well. John was traded to the Chargers. At, this is at the twilight of his career, really a shadow of his former self. He was in, I guess, early 40s, had a lot of injuries. So he was constantly having to be driven to the doctor uh, during training camp. So I took him. Uh, we were there probably twice a week. So sometimes these drives to the doctors were 45 minutes from the camp. So we spent a lot of time in the car and in waiting rooms. And what an education this was uh, for me to be able to hear stories and to learn about the game from the guy who many still believe is the greatest quarterback of all time. I know there's Montana and Brady fans, and they certainly can make their case. But at that time, Johnny U was considered the best quarterback. Were you about 19 years old? Yeah, I was yeah, about 19 but at the time. Wasn't and, there a culture clash with Udinus and those Chargers of the, of the early 70s? Well, yes, there, 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 there was uh, some... Uh, a few members of the squad who were known to imbibe in cannabis after the meals and before the meetings. By the way, the Chargers only won two games that year, so you can draw your own conclusions. So John would be in the dormitory. He would he would smell the uh, the weed, and he would he came over to where I was because a I had a television. Uh, and B, I had a um, cooler filled with Coors beer. So the combination was irresistible. So he'd come over and he'd say, Groucho, that was my nickname because I looked like Groucho Marx back then. He said, they're smoking some rope over there. I, I don't want any part of that. So he came over and I was a safe haven. So he would drink beer instead. I guess everybody has their own vice. But I that mean, was this it. is Johnny U, buzz cut, black high tops, Johnny U. Powder blue Johnny U, though. Powder blue Johnny U. With the pot smoking early 70s San Diego Chargers and his refuge, his one place to get away from the madness, the reefer madness, was Plout. And with Plout's permission, because in Plout's office, which really is a... You talked about unique architecture earlier. If there was a unique piece of interior design in this building, it, your your office might be the most unique. He has what I can only describe as the bobblehead army, which is hundreds and hundreds uh, of of bobbleheads of all uh, walks of sports and political and cultural life, in addition to an incredible library and other mementos. But relevant to this conversation is the 8x10 black and white photo of you and Johnny Yu personalized Groucho quaff in full effect Fu Manchu mustache? Uh, no, I don't. It was not quite. No, it was not the Joe Woolley name of Fu Manchu. It was just a Welcome regular, back, Cotter? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a Groucho mustache. Okay. Yeah, yeah. With, with Plot's permission, we're going to put this up on social media uh, after this pod is posted because, I mean, if anything could bring this story even to a higher level, it's the image of the two of you together. I mean, if there was ever a chapter one of a memoir, those car rides sound like they were it. He was uh, pretty great. His, uh, he uh, had a very dry sense of humor. And I think he appreciated that someone as young as myself was as steeped in history because he, I guess his experience was that, that teenagers in those days really weren't that interested in that. And the fact that I knew about all the players and many of the games that he was in, I think he found that 
to be that I was a receptive audience. And so I think he was more forthcoming than he might have been with somebody else. Did you ever encounter him later on in your career to have a chance to interview him and, and bring that any of that back up? I, I did not. But when uh, NFL Films produced the United show for HBO, he was interviewed by one of our colleagues and uh he asked John if uh, he remembered Groucho. He goes, oh, sure, a big smile on his face. He did remember me, and uh, that was that was because that was like 20 years later, but I was, it's nice to be remembered by a legend. Nobody could ever forget Dave Plow. Julia, you're not part of a lineage that starts with John Unitas. I'm, I don't, gosh, I'm trying to think because I'm looking at my career, which is obviously very small in comparison to yours, Dave, but I will say I did start doing something that I think is wise. I'm starting to keep a journal of all my adventures in NFL films. I will sell to you all when I retire. <laughs> Do you but have I'm a, starting to keep track of who I've interviewed, who I've done shoots with, just so it doesn't escape my brain. Do you have an equivalent story to Johnny Yu running to Groucho? I don't. To the embrace of Groucho and his cooler full of cores? That's, uh, I can't top that one. Last question I have. What is one thing that Steve Sable taught you that you've never forgotten? He... I, I don't know if it was something that I wasn't aware of, but he reinforced it. And it was how Im important it is that you have fun while you're doing the work that you do. He, and he, he said that, you know, you take the work that you have, but make that work enjoyable in a way that, that will help you create a better product. You'll be happier. You'll be more committed. And just his setting those parameters and allowing us to uh, stretch our imaginations to do really off the wall things because Steve himself was in many ways just such a, a crazy character. Uh, I was able to do a film with the um, great improvisational comedian Jonathan Winters, uh, where he played, Jonathan played 30 different characters, and I came up with this concept, and I worked on that film with Dave Douglas, who's also retiring with me uh, in a couple of months when, when we ended, and we just let our imaginations run wild because we had this mercurial comedic talent, and Steve was the person who encouraged us to do that. He said the more off-the-wall it, it is the better. In fact, I, I think you guys remember that Steve had a spectacular failure competition. He he would give uh, a cash prize to somebody who came up with the most outrageous idea for a film. And that even if it ended up being a bomb, he wanted to, to give you the courage to be able to do that. So when you ask, what did he teach me? It was more an opportunity that he gave myself and everybody else here. Remarkable. Well, thanks for everything you've taught us, Dave. You can't replace the institutional knowledge of where things are, what we've done, how we've done it before, and how we can do better. So uh, thanks for everything you've, you've taught me and, and all the rest of us, younger generation. And me, when I was first, uh, about four years after I got here, Dave and I did, the, did Blue Diamond, the 75th anniversary history of the New York Giants together. Yep. And I, and I said to myself, this guy, Kaz, I think he's got some talent. And we went up to the premiere uh, in a limo and I brought my son who was in fourth grade who had yeah. never been in a limo before. And that night, the three of us all met some of the greatest legends in Giants history, yeah. numerous Hall of Famers. And uh, I don't know, was that your first time seeing some of these guys? I was about 25. I yeah, mean, I, I, I think you were a little starry eyed. Yeah. I sure was. I sure yeah. was. And I, you know, and I, I was, you know, a guy in, in my early 40s. So uh, it was great. So, yeah, I, I remember that experience very well. It was uh, it was a lot of fun to make that film, and, and uh, it's guys like uh, both of you and our colleagues. I, I leave the, the place, I think, in, in good hands, and I look forward to seeing what you do uh, when I'm not around to mess things up. Thank you. Watch 
Dave's final long production, The Ice Bowl. The timeline, The Ice Bowl, uh, a story told by someone who knows it better than anyone, along with his co-producer, Julia. Thanks to both of you for joining us here today and giving us a little more on the film. Great. It was great having you guys. Thank you for having us. All right. Hit it. Thank you to Steve Mosley, our engineer, Rich Owens, our producer, Michael Meredith, for joining us in studio. Thanks to Dave Plout and Julia Harmon, the co-producers of the Timeline, the Ice Bowl. Follow us on all our social accounts, NFL Films, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Go to YouTube and watch our stuff. Watch all our shows on TV. We'll see you next time. Bye, Paul. Bye, Keith.